14 verses 1 to 12, which is on page 1140 in the Red Bibles. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Thanks, Rosie. And do keep your Bibles open. And... Let me pray as we look at this together. Father God, uh, as Simon has already prayed, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is breathed by you and is given to us to speak to us today, Lord. Help us to listen to what you have to say. Uh, and we pray that we may delight in you more, uh, having looked at uh, what you're teaching us today. Amen. Not that yet. On the essentials, unity. On the non-essentials, freedom. In everything, love. I think that's a fair summary of what Paul is instructing the church in Rome and us today here. On the essentials, unity. On the non-essentials, freedom. And in everything, love. We've been looking at in the implications of the gospel, Romans 12, 13, 14, and a key beating drum throughout has been, what does it look like to love others? What does it look like to love our neighbours as ourselves? What does it look like to love uh, those who don't love us back? What does it look like for us to love the governing authorities God has put in place over us? And now we get it. What does it look like to love uh, in the church when we may disagree on certain things? Because unity within the church uh, really matters. And yet it is hard. Jesus prayed for unity for his disciples and us in John 17. He said this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity is a, is a witness to the God who is three in one. Our, our unity is a witness to the world which goes, look at this, it's magnificent. And yet at the same time, just as the Trinity is three in one and, and there's diversity there, that's a core characteristic of the Christian community, unity and diversity. Paul wonderfully says this in 1 Corinthians. He says this, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But that is, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose. There's something incredibly powerful about the fact that we're all so different in this room. Our diversity is powerful from different backgrounds, different countries. We do different jobs. We are a variety of ages. We've come from a number of churches previously with different stories and how we came to faith. And yet in Jesus, we are one. That is, praise the Lord, generally the testimony I think Town Church is currently giving to the watching world. As people come in, if they've not been to church before, they will. And I know as I've spoken to a number of them before, they found it striking, if it's maybe the first time in a church building, how odd and surprising in a good way it is to find such unity amidst diversity. And yet, as we see here, diversity does not often make for unity. It's complicated because there's a human tendency to judge those who aren't like us. Those who don't do things like we do them or aren't from the same place we are or have slightly different traditions or cultures. The unity of Christ's church is often destroyed by diversity, as a quick read back through church history will show again and again. And this is what is in danger of happening in Rome in Paul's day. The churches we've seen in Rome, it's a mix of two main groups. You've got Gentile Christians who had come from a, a more sort of pagan background. And you've got Jewish Christians who converted from Judaism. Paganism required very little of the Gentiles beforehand. But the Roman Jews were actually really known for outdoing even the Jerusalem Jews in their observance of the law. And then as we dive into this, these issues, um, we see how these two groups have come together and there's a bit of conflict going on. Now, we need to understand these Jews who Paul is calling weak are Christians. He calls uh, them here very clearly. They are Christians. They know the gospel is all about grace. It's nothing to do with what they have to do to be saved. That's not the issue at hand here. Uh, and if you're here for the first time, you're still trying to get your head around what Christianity is all about. It's a big misconception uh, that we think we have to do something to earn our way towards God. We're not good people who are trying to do good things to earn our way to God. Every other religion is a form of this. But as Paul has made repeatedly clear again and again, we are all sinners in need of a saviour. We're all drowning and we need rescued. And these Christians in this church in Rome, they got this. But even as they understood that, it seems they'd not entirely escaped from the thought that observing God's law was pleasing to him. They felt this was an appropriate response to God's grace. And this position was understandable but it wasn't biblical and so there was tension and so Paul writes this he said accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters Paul is not saying that these weak Christians are not saved or they don't trust in Christ and we see in fact that the weak are often those who are most fervent and determined in trying to please God they're passionate about their faith. They're, in some senses, maybe something we can learn for them in their desire to honour God in every area of their lives. 
but they're described here by Paul as weak because there's a remnant of a legalistic spirit in them. Maybe due to their upbringing or their culture or maybe their temperaments or their convictions. But the key point Paul is making and pleading with the church here is do not split over things which don't ultimately matter. Do not split over things which are disputable, where scripture maybe is unclear or there's just legitimate debate. It seems when they talk about the food laws, it seems the Jews in Rome were still wanting to follow the Old Testament food laws. And they've moved, uh, maybe, or they've just become Jews in Rome, and they were unsure if the meat in Rome was kosher or not, was killed according to the food laws. And so they've become vegetarians. That's why he's talking here about those who don't eat meat. They've become vegetarians because they were so determined to follow the food laws. And we see here both groups are judging each other. Paul's got a word for the strong and he's got a word for the weak. You can imagine a Jewish man bumping into a Gentile brother in the supermarket. His trolley, there it is, stacked full of meat for his summer barbecue. It's a big barbecue. Grace and peace, my friend, the Jewish brother says. What have you got there in your, in your trolley? Pretty obvious where I've got my trolley, mate. Oh, it's amazing. We're going to have a barbecue tonight. I've got some great deals on this meat. 20 pounds all that. 20 pounds. Why don't you bring your family around and we'll eat it together, friend? And you can imagine the Jewish man frowning, storming off, tutting under his breath. The Gentile brother taken aback because he realises what was going on. He was being judged. He was being judged. The easy solution would be just to form two churches. There's the Bista Carnival Church and St. Vegetarius's. But Paul was committed to a higher and far more difficult solution. I'll take that off. (laughs) It's relevant for us today, though. It's relevant. That would have been so easy, but Paul calls his church to unity. And it's relevant for us because judging each other has always been a favourite sport for Christians. Around the world, the issue of drinking alcohol in moderation and abstinence is a really common debate in churches. Uh, in some countries, and in America, I listen to a number of podcasts, I read a number of commentaries around this. One of the key ways they apply this is somebody might say, how can you be a Democrat and a Christian? How can you believe this and be a Christian? Or in some countries of the world, it could be, as I just said, how can you be a Christian and drink any alcohol at all? Some would find it incredibly worldly and lavish for a Christian to wear any jewellery, including a wedding ring. Whilst here in Europe, we think it may be immoral for a wife to not wear a ring Signifying her status. Bizarre. Very different cultures. When I lived in India, generally Christians did not go to the cinema. It was seen as inappropriate in the town I was living in. Here I've heard the argument, uh, I've heard that argument, but we still exercise wisdom as to what we watch. Some find it a little bit odd that we planted a church to meet at 4pm on a Sunday to deliberately allow for people to take part in sport. And we obviously think otherwise. We can see how it can happen though Our people can be ripped apart by even the smallest of disagreements. And so we need to listen to Paul here. So there's three things we need to know. That's in the wrong place. We need to know that acceptance is the only option. Let me read verses one to three again. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not 
And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Paul makes it clear here that both the weak and the strong must accept one another because God has accepted them. The weak, it seems, were inclined to judgmentalism and the strong to condemnation. They'd be saying things like, well, he can't be a good Christian because he does this. She can't be a good Christian because she wears that. But whether weak or strong, the call here is to wholehearted acceptance. This is the gospel played out in the church. It's powerful. Paul says we must remember that whatever a Christian's strength or weakness in behaviour or views, he or she is completely loved and accepted by the Father through Christ. It's what the whole of Romans is about. And now he's applying it to these disputes. John Stott said this on this passage. He said, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle is better even than the golden rule to treat others as we treat ourselves, as we looked at last week. It's safe to treat, treat others as we'd like them to treat us. But it is safer still to treat them as God does. It's powerful. Now, I think it's important, I'm going to segue slightly briefly, um, because this is not a call to be wishy-washy. Because some Christians might say, all that matters is we love one another. In a, in a culture which is valuing a seeming value of tolerance above everything else, and ironically is intolerant to anyone who doesn't hold to their own value of tolerance. This is what they say. They say, all we need is love. But no, by stating here that there are disputable matters, Paul is making clear there are some in which we cannot dispute on. There are some matters on which we must divide, some in which we must say, no, that is a wrong and unhelpful understanding, or even a dangerous teaching. It's false teaching. We must do that. Paul, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, is livid that some were saying it is essential for Christians to be circumcised. Adding to the gospel. And Paul has spent his first 11 chapters making clear what is essential. In uh, preparing for today, I read this little helpful book. um, Finding the Right Hills to Die on. The Case for Theological Triage. It's a book by a guy called Gavin Orland. He says this on the back. He says, in theology, just as in battle, some hills are worth dying on and others are not. But how do we know which ones? When should doctrine divide and when should unity prevail? It's a helpful book, and if you're interested in this, it's worth having a read. Uh, But let me just give you a little essence of his framework, because I think it's really helpful here, because Paul has obviously put things into categories of disputable matters and non-disputable matters. Um, Orland here has four kind of categories. I think they're useful. Firstly, he's got first rank. First rank, second rank, third rank, and fourth rank issues. First rank, these are the things which are essential to the gospel itself. These are the things we must defend. We must be clear on as a church. These are the, the gospel imperatives. Where, for example, when we as elders preach here from a front, we will be vigorous in our defence and our insistence on. All of these have come up in the last year in Romans. It's why we chose to preach this verse by verse. Topics like the nature of God, the, the Trinity, the doctrine of sin, that none of us are right before God. Justification by faith alone, as Paul has vehemently defended 
We can only be saved by trust in Jesus, nothing else. Our freedom in Christ now, the eternal hope of heaven, the reality of judgment, God's wrath and hell. A key one I'll then add in within our denominations and churches in our country today and around the world is the authority and relevance of scripture for today as God's final revealed word. These are first rank issues. They're best expressed at Town Church in our statement of faith, I think. Found on our website, our governing documents. Our church handbook makes this clear. You can't read that. <laughs> the basis of faith sets out matters that we believe all Christian believers should be able to accept wholeheartedly. And a person can only become a member of the church if they've indicated that they do accept those beliefs. Historically, those core truths have been expressed in the creeds. These are first rank core things where if we disagree on, we cannot be in fellowship with other churches as well. And this does play out here in Bicester. It's worth you knowing. Each week, the pastors in Bicester meet to pray together, organise certain things. Simon goes regularly to these meetings. And there are a number of theological issues on which um, they directly limit our partnership with other churches because we disagree with them on. And that is right and appropriate for the sake of the witness of God's church. You see, some will call for unity above all else as a mark of virtue. But there are things which we disagree on, which we think scripture is clear on and others are going against God on. And so it's right and appropriate to call those out. It's right and appropriate in our role as shepherds of this church, as elders. And as those are called to faithfully witness the whole of God's word to our town to be clear on these things. Paul again and again makes this clear in his letters. He writes a letter to a church, I said in Galatia, which firmly calls out significant issues of doctrine and false teaching. Those are first rank issues. But remember, that's not what's going on in Romans 14. That's not what's happening. There's then second rank doctrines. Orland uh, defines these as those which are urgent for the health and practice of the church in such that Christians will separate over these in a local church or denomination level. These things really matter. Uh, they would include things like our theology of baptism, how a church is led and structured for us at Town Church. Again, you can find all that in our church handbook, our governance documents. We explicitly talk about our conviction on believers' baptism, on plural eldership, on independence with congregational oversight. We have a section in our handbook called Doctrinal Distinctives. It's helpful to read that. It expresses our teaching. You won't be able to read this, I'm imagining. Um, it says this in our Doctrinal Distinctives. We recognise there are a number of doctrines not referred to in the basis of faith over which genuine Christian believers may take different views. Church members are not required to agree with the matters in the doctrinal distinctives and may hold and discuss views to the contrary. But members are required to respect the position set out in the doctrinal distinctives as the teaching of the church and should not be insistent on their own views or divisive over these matters. As that expresses on second rank issues, there'll be members of the church, I know there are, where we may hold different views on things like baptism on ecclesiology, the way the church should function, and things like maybe even the role of the spiritual gifts in a Sunday gathering. We'll hold different views on these things. And there are items where faithful, godly Christians will disagree on how to interpret passages of scripture. But they are important things, and there are clear implications for how we then operate and live as a church if we disagree on them. We can be in really good fellowship with other churches where they hold a different view on something when they're second rank. But it would be odd to kind of try and do church together necessarily. We just hold slightly different views. That's okay. Those are second round things. Then we get into third rank 
And fourth rank, and this is where I think really Paul is spending his time. Third rank doctrines are those which are still important to theology, but not enough to justify separation. For example, uh, Orland places things like our view on exactly what will happen at the end times. Uh, The future of Israel, really pertinent now um, to think about. But third rank doctrines, important, but not enough to justify separation over. And then fourth rank doctrines, unimportant to our gospel witness and collaboration. And it seems, as I said, Paul seems to be in these fourth and third rank doctrines when he's talking about this, if he was kind of using Auckland's definitions. But he's got disputable, non-disputable. What could this look like for us in our church? Maybe trying to apply it because I don't think the issues are food laws. don't think the issues we come down later are kind of holy days and exactly what they look like, but they might be. Here's a few issues. It could be uh, around our use of money could be seen in a conversation which meant something like this i could go um simon uh, stop me if i'm wrong but haven't you been spending a lot of money recently new car last year and he goes no but but i go oh, but don't you think that money could have been better spent giving it to the food bank you see how that can quickly i've i've, I've judged him there straight away another key one in a church with many families will be around parenting choices and styles One family may have a certain view on screen time, for example, or what age is appropriate to own a mobile phone, or how they discipline their children. It could be around schooling, state schools, private schools, homeschools, their benefits, disadvantages. And of course, talk about these things is a good thing. Seeking advice is a good thing and wise counsel, but we cannot let those things cause disunity and judgment and gossip. It could be around things uh, like card games and gambling. The association with gambling has often meant we've stayed away from traditional card games as Christians. It's a wise thing. It could be around our participation in sports, as I've said. I spend a lot of my time speaking and writing about this. Some say sport leads to pride and anger and overcompetitive spirits, and so we should just stay away from it. Others would argue that whilst, yes, like in any area of life, there are opportunities to sin, it's a good gift from God to be played for his glory. Good conversations to have and not worth dividing over. There are many other issues churches around the world will think about. Maybe our use of fashion, entertainment choices, makeup, drinking of alcohol, tattoos. There's lots of things where debates come in. But according to Romans 14, wherever you stand on these issues, you must accept your Christian brother and sister who differs to you. If you're an abstainer, you must not judge the one who participates. If you participate, you must not disdain the one who abstains. And this call to acceptance comes to us as a command of God. If we were to obey him, we have no choice in this matter. That was a long point. But we'll quickly go through points two and three, because I think they expand our understanding. Secondly, how do we accept non-essential? Paul is clear again here in verse five and six. The controversy he brings up here is around holy days. It's probably mainly involved Sabbath observance, they say. Rules around things done or not done on the Sabbath. The, the Christian Jews' conscience demanded they observe it really rigidly. They had many books written outside of scripture around exactly how many miles you could walk or not, or whether you could take your cattle in from the field or not. And nowadays we see it with, with Orthodox Jews and how they viewed the Sabbath and whether they can turn lights on or not and things like that. There's loads of literature about Sabbath observance. So the Christian Jews' conscience demanded they observe it. The Christian Gentiles' conscience argued that every day is equally devoted to service and worship of God. Paul's advice here is simple. Each must be convinced in their own mind. Verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. 
each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. He's saying each Christian is to use their own thoughtful, prayerful powers of reasoning that have at least started to be renewed by the Spirit under the power of God's word. To consider wisely what they do and don't do. To talk to others about that, to think that through. The same is true for eating or not eating meat here in Rome. Verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul's saying the evidence that both the weak and the strong have their right hearts, that they both give thanks to God, they're able to give thanks to God. They're doing this in order to serve God and with deliberate thoughts. For example, a Christian may decide for really good reasons to abstain from alcohol. In that case, it is wrong to judge and condemn others who drink, just as it would be wrong and to, to judge them for abstaining. As verse 4 told us, we're not their master, God is, and so we're not qualified to judge. I think verse 6 here also gives us a really good principle when we start to think about how we act and our behaviour, what it looks like as renewed people. It says here, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord, whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. If there are things we are doing which we can't legitimately thank God for, we probably shouldn't be doing them. Now, we're all likely to have a tendency one way or the other, I think, here. We'll either think that all matters are disputable or we'll think that nothing is. But instead, the call here from Paul is to think seriously and carefully about our conduct. To be clear, as Paul's talked a lot about food and drink, we do need to think carefully about what we put in our bodies both food and drink, and how we take seriously God's command and principle to rest as well is important for us. But we can legitimately differ in what that looks like. People with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can both be perfectly right with God. For example, I'm pretty convinced by the benefit of a principle of a 24-hour period. I normally try and take it from Friday dinner to Saturday dinner, where me and my family, we try and have uh, a day where we do no work either from paid employment or church, and I deliberately seek to have time with them, I enjoy God's good gifts, and I direct my heart to him. So I think it's a good principle. But whilst I think there's wisdom there in that regular rhythm, that's not the same as me standing here, and don't hear me say I'm standing here from the front, saying you must be like me, or you're in some way lesser. You must do this in this precise way, or you're in some way less of a Christian. As elders, when we preach, you'll hear us be explicit and firm when we need to be on essential matters and on clear applications. Again, we're not talking about basic doctrines. We're not talking about clear scriptural commands like do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not get drunk. We're not talking about those. God has in many places made it really clear what it looks like to now live as his children in the best possible way, to flourish in this world. It's our role as elders to shepherd God's people. That will mean we will have tough conversations. We will guide, we'll instruct but we also need to be careful ourselves to not elevate disputable matters or matters of wisdom to sound like they're essential marks of being a Christian. It's the same for you and your ministering to one another. Finally, and in view of that as well, Jesus is Lord, not us. That's what we need to know. Jesus is Lord, not us. Verse 7, for none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We're not our own. 
God is our Lord. And this is a foundational truth which establishes our unity amidst our diversity. Verses 10 to 12, they make clear that we will answer him for all of our lives. We'll have to answer to him. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Firstly, Paul reminds us that if we're in Christ, we're family. We are family. And he's basically saying, remember who your father is. Stop trying to be God to one another. He alone will judge. Remember, we will all stand before him and he will judge our actions and our motives. And we will definitely have to answer for our judgmental attitudes. Isn't it wonderful that the final judgment is up to God? That his evaluation will be perfect? Our reward will be exactly what we deserve as it will be for our brothers and our sisters. We will all stand before God. If you're here today and you're not currently trusting in Jesus, you're so welcome. But it would be wrong of me to not be clear here. God will judge. God is rightfully angry and wrathful towards you because of your sin, because of your rebellion against him. For when you say and think that you're the Lord of your own life and live exactly how you want, that is not how we were made to be and it is not honouring God. You will stand before him. So can I implore you to trust him? That is the only way to avoid his right punishment. To experience life to the fullness now. I would love to talk to you about that if that's you. Or someone else you know here. Have a chat to them. Put your trust in him today. For the Christian, our only hope on that day of judgment is in Christ. And his righteousness. It is only because we trust in Christ that we can be assured that we can stand before him. God alone will judge. It's not my job. Paul's going to keep unpacking that next week. We'll look at it as he addresses the strong. On the essentials, unity. On the non-essentials, freedom. In everything, love. Paul has been unpacking these last weeks. What does it look like to love? To love God with our whole hearts. In response, in view of his mercy. Now we live lives of worship to him. And that gets outworked in our relationships with one another. And they're difficult, aren't they? Because we are still, as we live in this kind of now and not yet before Christ returns, it's difficult because we still have sin. We still envy one another. We're jealous. We're judgmental. It happens. We need the Lord's forgiveness. But friends, maybe we'll be a church which continues to be marked by unity. Will we continue to pray and work on being a welcoming church where new members are enfolded in a uniting love? Will we pray for wisdom? Will we discuss and debate that in home groups this week? Pray for wisdom to know which battles are worth fighting for and which are not. We not tire of our commitment to love one another. To bear with one another with all our differences. Let's go and love one another. Shine brightly to the watching world today. And let's now sing. We're going to sing of that unity, a song of unity. And we're going to make it our prayer. I'd encourage you to make it your prayer. It's a bold song of our unity.
And then what we're going to do is we're going to invite the little ones back in and we're going to demonstrate our unity through the sharing of communion. So let's stand together and sing this wonderful song.